0: Another, day, another dollar makes you wonder where you're, you're You can scream and you can holler. Really Hi, folks. This is Jack Spearfield with another edition of the Survival Podcast coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas. Today, with episode 394 of the Survival Podcast, it is Tuesday. March ninth two thousand and ten which means it is just a you know it is actually the day that I'm leaving for my vacation as soon as my wife can cut herself free from work and get home hopefully maybe at least an hour early so we can get out ahead of the traffic anyway uh, don't worry, even though I'm going to be gone from uh, tonight until Sunday evening, tech support may be a little bit lapsed because I won't be able to do as much tech support uh, remotely from the bug out location, but uh, there will be shows there will be a show tomorrow. With Rob Gray being interviewed by me, Rob is from the American Open Currency Standard and the AG Trading Center here in Texas. And I'll tell you what, uh, I'm going to have a special announcement at the end of tomorrow's show about the MSB and silver. So you really want to tune in for that if you're not yet an MSB member. All right, next uh, I will have Scout. Also known as Mike Adam, I should probably say Mike Adam, Michael Adam, also known as Scout, uh, from the Appleseed Project on. He will be on Thursday to talk about becoming a rifleman, what it means to be a rifleman, and what Appleseed's all about, some of the history of our country. And, and there's, some, there's some stuff that he talks about that really will make you think back to being a kid, I think, if you grew up with a rifle in your hands, uh, and, and, a, and a kind adult at your shoulder helping you become a better shot. Uh, and if not, maybe it will help you see why, You know, if you didn't grow up with that, what you missed and why you should make sure that it's something your kids or your grandkids don't miss. All right, moving on, uh, let's go ahead and uh, tell you what today's show is going to be about. Today's show is going to be about um, things that you can plant in your backyard, or on your property, and provide food for yourself with. But as, as is common the case here, I'm going to try to go through some plants that you either haven't heard of, or if you have heard of them, you've probably heard of them here before. Uh, but they're not generally the things that you find in most nurseries. You have to go online and order them, do a little research to find the varieties that fit well in your area. Now, why I like to do these uh, these unusual edible uh, shows is because I find that, first of all, you guys seem to like that, because anybody can tell you, plant an apple, plant a pear plant regular old cherry, whatever. Um, And bringing these unusuals in has a capacity to create a diversity in your landscape. And through that diversity, we build strength, because diversity in nature creates interrelationships. And it's not the diversity itself that makes the system strong. It's the interrelationships within the system. Additionally, uh, you guys just seem to like it. I mean, every time I do a show like this, you guys are like, man, it was great. I didn't know about all this stuff. And then the other thing is, like a couple weeks ago, I did one on unusual edibles for your backyard. But I talked about things like Wulzonte and uh, red Aztec spinach and uh, you know amaranth And uh, all types of plants that are annuals Meaning you have to plant them every year So I thought to balance that show I would do a show today on I think I got nine queued up plants like that But they're perennial uh, They're long term perennials Which means they come back year after year after year Most of them will produce for you in year one Few of them will produce for you in year two All of them will start to produce by year three and from that point on, you'll get production every single year with very little input. So I look at today's plants as investments. You have to invest some time, effort, and a little bit of money to get started out with them, uh, but like a good investment, they then pay you a dividend every single year for years and years and years to come. So before we do that, though, let's knock out our housekeeping today. Housekeeping item number one today is all, as always, is always, taking care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day, number one, backyard food production. If you want to know how to turn your backyard into a food production machine to provide everything you need from vegetables, fruits, and nuts to protein sources like chickens, geese, and rabbits. Check, rabbits. Check out backyard food production. I cannot say enough good things about their DVD. My only advice to Marjorie has been come out with something else because people that buy her DVD want more from her. That, that, and that, so she's a, a company that doesn't have enough products if there's any complaint there. Uh, but get the DVD, it is absolutely amazing, you'll learn a ton of things from it. Next up today, Sawtooth Tactical. If you want to find really cool, tactical type stuff, check out SawTac, uh, they're Absolutely outstanding. And one thing I'll tell you about SOTAC is if anything ever goes wrong, they're going to fix it for you. I've heard from people that maybe an order got messed up, but these guys bent over backwards to fix a problem. And you know what? Problems are going to happen because we have this thing called, you know, the United States Postal Service or UPS or FedEx. And occasionally they screw something up. But uh, the guys over there really take care of people. And uh, that's the kind of sponsor I want on the show. I don't want big-name national you know, sponsors, really. I like having the small business people uh, because I they know they're going to take care of you. All right, moving on, let's uh, remind you to check out our gear shop. Sis and T.W. do a great job with that thing. They're going to give you great service, too. I think the T-shirts are really cool. I think we're about to get our next run of challenge coins. I'm not sure on that. Uh, but to get a challenge coin because if I see you out in the field, I'm going to be uh, – You know, pulling mine out, and you're going to be buying a beer or a coffee, depending on where we're at. All right, from uh, from that, I want to remind you about the MSB, Member Support Brigade. If you like the show, if you think it's worth more than 20 cents an episode, consider supporting the show with a contribution of $5 a week or $50 a year. I'll leave it at that for today. Let's get into today's main topic, which, again, is going to be nine plants to plant in your yard that will come back and produce for you year after year after year. Again, I want to remind you, I want you to see this like an investment. Um, I know a lot of people think I'm going to plant a bush or a tree or a vine and, you know, this year it's not going to give me anything usable. And I'll have to work on it. I'll have to take care of it. If I don't water it, it'll die. You know, I'll have to amend the soil around it. I get nothing. The second year, maybe I get nothing. I mean, grapes, you know, you can get grapes your second year, but you're really better off, like, cutting all the grapes off and letting all of it go into vine production your second year, and then you go into your third year. With some of the trees, like, I'm going to talk about hazelnut today, is going to be one. You might get some production in your third year, but you're looking at fourth and fifth before you really get into heavy production. Five years, seems like a long time. But think about when you invest money for your retirement, or you buy gold or silver and put it away as an inflationary hedge, and understand that it can appreciate over time and profit. Think about it when you buy a home. Right? You go live in the home, but if you're going to buy it and, and it's going to be a starter home, and you're going to sell it, you don't buy it today and sell it tomorrow. It's not a, it's not a flip type of a, of a property engagement, and those are hard to do. But buying a home, living in it for five years, improving it, and selling it at a profit, as long as you're smart about how you do it, you buy a home that has room for improvement. So you have room to put equity into it beyond the market. It's relatively easy to do. But nobody expects to go to put, buy a CD at their bank tomorrow uh, or buy a house tomorrow or, or buy gold tomorrow, wait 48 hours and, and sell it and get a huge profit. Right? If you do, you're probably going to be parted with your money. That's how you have to view these plants today. They're long-term investments, and what you have to think about is something like, well, yeah, I have to make the investment in the plant. Maybe the plant costs $12. Maybe the plant costs $20. I have to invest in watering it for a couple of years. But once I get into a yield out of that plant, and that plant, let's say, produces uh, 50 pounds of yield a year, over 10 years, that's 500 pounds of yield. And if I can then take that plant and graft it and make more plants or use the seed from it and make more plants, or if it's a plant that spreads naturally and suckers, uh, we won't talk about strawberries today, but they're a perfect example. Uh, I grew the strawberry pot that I put in the members brigade last year. Once the plants started growing, they started to send out runners. We just put pots around the pot, caught the runners, rooted them in the dirt, and cut them off and we have two more pots full of strawberries that are just starting to you know, kind of green up and get ready to go like nuts for this season, but all of those came from the existing plant. So when you start looking at yield and reproduction and the time that they're in the system and the job, multiple jobs that they'll be within the system, you'll find that it's probably one of the best, best investments you can make. It's probably a better investment on a pure return of investment standpoint than any mutual fund than a house, you know, than gold. When you really look at, if I take a plant that costs me $20, and it produces me, let's say, over 20 years, 1,000 pounds or more of food, then I got that food for two cents a pound. That's pretty cut and dry, right? And, I mean, that's how we have to look at the production from these plants. And if we start saying, well, and this plant produced offspring, and I used a graft, or I used a cutting, or I used a seed to produce the second plant, I have zero investment in this, then your return of investment is infinite. And this can be done over and over and over again. I also want you to think today as I'm going through these places how they can be used in a system, and I'll give you some ideas, but I want you to think of how they'll fit in your system in your home. Based on, like, what its zone so I can actually plant this because it gets cold here, but this will work for me. Uh, but also think about the structure, the height. Where does it go in your seven-layer canopy system? If you're not familiar with that, go listen to one of my shows on, on the concept. We're going through them real quick. In a permaculture system, a seven-layer permaculture system, and not all permaculture systems have to have seven layers. But if they do, we start out with a high tree layer. That's our canopy. And then coming facing towards the main sun that we have on the property from there, we have a low tree layer. And then below the low tree layer, we have a shrub layer. All right, Beyond the shrub layer, we have the herbaceous layer. Beneath the ground, we have the rhizomal layer. Climbing up the shrubs, up the herbs, up the trees, we have a vining or climbing layer. We also have what we call our ground cover layer which is all the plants that grow laterally out across the ground. And all of those layers combine together to create a system that stacks function. And by stacking function, we get more production out of a small area than we could with conventional agricultural techniques because we're actually stacking them on top of each other. And as we create kind of a a sloped effect, so we have our high tree, to just see it, looking at it from an angle, high tree, low tree, um, shrubs and bushes, and then herbaceous. And you see those four layers and how they would slope downward. So you can plant the trees at standard distances apart uh, in, in their rows so your big trees will all have their standard spacing but when you plant the next subtree layer you don't space them far out they're actually stacked very close against um, your high tree layer and then you bring your shrubs very close against your low tree because all of the solar activity is out in front of that stack system so think about how things like these fit into those systems and I'll try to help you out the first one is one we've talked about before but I decided it was a good one to talk about again today and it's called goji berry it's also known as Wolfberry Uh, This is a really cool shrub It's kind of a shrub layer thing But you can grow it up into the 6 foot high range So it has potential For things like allowing beans and other climbers To grow up, but as long as they're not too large Because it's not a real huge Sturdy tree It is really kind of a woody shrub Uh, Why Goji berry? What, what What is the big deal about them? Well they're high in protein That's a big deal uh, if you ever have to rely on food in your backyard and you don't have a lot of protein sources around you, um, having vegetables or fruits that provide protein is a big plus. And there's a tremendous amount of protein uh, you know, per ounce in goji berry. It's also high in antioxidants and has more carotene than carrots in it. So there's some very essential nutrients there. It also has all the essential amino acids in many minerals. It's so fertile, so if you have one plant, it'll grow and produce. Uh, you don't need any you know, additional varieties. And one of the really cool things that I found about goji berry is it's reproducible from seed. Now, if you wanted to get into production fast, I would really recommend you buy yourself a couple plants and get them going. But if you want a lot of goji berry... You can harvest the seed yourself, or you can purchase seed. i purchased seed this year. I'm working with it now. It comes from a place called Sand Mountain Herbs is where I found uh, my seed. I got extra help from the owner of Sand Mountain Herbs. He said the best way to get these things to, to germinate is to germinate them over. They take a while to germinate. It can take two to six weeks. They need to be held for best results at a constant 75-degree temperature. Well, how do you do that? Well, I've got a little Hoverbator incubator right, for incubating eggs. Well, you can set the temperature anywhere you want. I learned that trick from trioxin. I already had the incubator. I never thought about putting plants in there. So you have a moisture-controlled, temperature-controlled environment. So I'm experimenting with germinating my own goji or wolfberry this year. So it's something I recommend you look into. Obviously, it's a shrub-layer plant. So think in your system, where does a shrub-layer fit? It will usually get into production from a plant level. You buy plants second year, uh, but it grows really fast. And uh, by the third year, you're getting probably out of three or four plants more than you want. Now, the other cool thing about goji berry is they're good eating fresh, but you can also just lay them out on a rack and dry them in the sun like raisins, and they store wonderfully because they're so high in antioxidants. Anything high in antioxidants, generally when dried, like grapes, uh, will, uh, tend to store well because the absorbic acid acts as a preservative as long as you remove the majority of the moisture. Uh, a friend of mine is real fond of buying, buying them already dried out and they make a really neat tea. So you just take a good handful of them, throw them into some hot water, let them soak for a while, and they're also a medicinal. Uh, they, they've been traditionally used in Chinese medicine for a variety of things so that I won't go into today. But so we have a plant. Fresh eating, storable food, reproducible from seed, and it has medicinal properties, self-fertile, and drought-tolerant quite a bit to get from one plant, and hardy in zone 6 through 9. So it can be grown in not all, but most of the United States. Um, the next one I have today is called uh, Juju, or Juju bee, depending on who you ask. Uh, and these are really cool trees. They have kind of a glossy green leaf. And I like them as a landscape tree, not just as an edible tree. A lot of people are like, well, I don't just want you know fruits. The reason people plant trees is they look for an ornamental value in the tree. So my view is always, well, how much more ornamental can you get than a peach or an almond when it goes into bloom? And all of you that plant these sterile pear trees, the pear tree that produces pears looks the same when it goes into bloom. But but this tree actually has a lot going for it as an ornamental, this juju tree. The leaves turn a very bright yellow, so they're a glossy green. Almost You'd almost expect it to be an evergreen when you looked at it in the summertime and it was growing because it kind of almost like uh, holly bushes have that look, almost like that, not quite. Magnolia has that look. That's what I'm talking about. And then they turn to this bright yellow uh, in the fall, and they have beautiful flowers in the spring. So you have this great landscape tree, but it produces uh, a fruit that's, I guess you'd say, about usually they're generally about an inch and a half, two inches long, one big seed in the middle. I don't know how, how successful you'll be propagating the seed, uh, but it's worth a shot. But they have so many unique attributes. First of all, they're very sweet and good for fresh eating. Uh, there are varieties of them that can be left on the tree until they dry out on the tree and picked, already dried and ready to store it. And uh, Bill Mollison in one of his videos said this will store as long as you want it to. I'm not sure what that means, but I take it to mean more than a year. So I can, I can leave it on the tree until it's already ready for storage. I can pick it early and set it out kind of like you would with green bananas and allow it to ripen slowly to extend my, my fresh eating of them as well. So it's just an interesting tree with an awful lot going for it um, They also can grow very large, so they can grow up to 20 feet uh, Now for some big properties, 20 feet, you might want even bigger than that for a canopy layer But for a lot of small properties, 20 feet is huge for a canopy layer So you might let them grow that high But they can also be pruned and kept down in that subcanopy layer, that, that low tree layer At 6 to 10 feet, where obviously they'd be a lot easier to pick so there's a tremendous amount of flexibility in how large these trees can get. And again, because they have a large single seed, they probably can be reproduced by seed. I just haven't read any information about anybody doing that, so I don't want to say that they definitely can. They're also um, quite tolerant uh, temperature-wise and also something you can look at planting around from zones uh, 6 to 9. So again, most of the country, not all of the country. Those of you in Zone 5 and lower, I'm getting to you. I have some plants for you guys too. I know that sometimes you guys think, man, there's nothing I can grow. All this cool stuff, it only grows up, up or down in the south. Uh, but the next one we're going to go to actually is Hardy all the way down into Zone 3. So uh, yeah, Zone 2 is the next. No, Zone 3. Sorry guys, I'm, I'm jumping around with my notes today a little bit. But Zone 2, so if you can't grow this, I mean, you're living somewhere where I don't know what you're growing, maybe lichens and moss. Um, But Zone 2 and uh, all the way up to, uh, actually, I'm sorry, man, I am having a hard time today. We're going to do the Zone 2 plant. I'll switch back. I don't want to change things. Zone 2. This plant is called Blue Honeysuckle, and it comes out of the Siberian area of the former Soviet Union and that's why you can expect it to be able to handle these low temperatures, but yet it has a tremendous amount of ability to handle some warmer times in the summers all the way up to zone 8. So this is a plant that honestly you can grow in just about all areas in the country, and if you're in zone 9 or higher, we don't want to hear you whine about it because you can grow really cool things that the rest of us can't grow, like, you know, really cool citrus fruits and passion fruits and things like that. So this kind of fills that gap back down to the colder regions of the country. They grow in a bush to about 4 feet tall. So now we're looking, again, we're looking at something that's an herbaceous, or not an herbaceous, a, a, a shrub layer plant. So if you're building a layered system, this is your shrub layer. Um, they begin production generally in their second year, so they will get you into production a lot faster than a tree. They flower as early as February, which is kind of cool. Because while a lot of your plants aren't even green yet, these guys will have these little trumpet-shaped, kind of oval-shaped uh, honeysuckle-looking white blossoms on them. And you think of honeysuckle as something that grows in the summer, not in you know February and March. Now, they're not as big as a honeysuckle flower, but they are really pretty. Uh, so they get that kind of that start to your year off. Eventually, they turn into kind of a teardrop-shaped white-blue fruit. The fruit tastes a lot like blueberry, and you pretty much use it any way that you would use a blueberry. You can use these things, except that they're kind of elongated, so they look a little bit different. They're high in vitamin C, and they're hardy to zones again two through eight. So you think about blueberries and some of the challenges with blueberries, and one is um, that they, they they need acidic soil. This plant doesn't really need acidic soil. So if you've had trouble growing blueberries in the past, uh, I would tell you first grow some blueberries in containers where you can use uh, soil mix that's designed for azaleas and you probably won't have any problems at all. But if you want to grow things in the ground and you're having trouble growing growing blueberries, give these guys a shot. Uh, There also are a lot of varieties of blueberries that won't be down into zone 2, for God's sake. So this can go into cold regions that blueberries don't do necessarily well in. And a lot of blueberries actually start to have problems out in zone 8 because it gets too hot. Uh, so I would tell you look for kind of partial shade and things like that, cooler cooler spots to plant your blueberries in the ground, but these will handle Zone 8 fairly well. So they have this amazing temperature spectrum that they can cross. You've got to give them a little bit of shade in the, uh, in the hotter regions and good solar exposure in the cooler regions, but they'll handle it. Uh, they're extremely hardy, they're fast-growing, they reproduce on their own through runners. Uh, So you plant one or two plants, and in a few years down the line, you've got them springing up all over the place. Um, And and they're really, really hardy. So this is another plant I recommend you check out. The next one I want to talk to you about uh, is really a cool plant. And it's something that I think a lot of people that would like to grow cherries and have tried to grow cherry trees... Uh, and give it up on cherries should look into. It's called Nanking Bush Cherry, and uh, it usually fruits in its first year. So all that talk that I gave you about kind of you know that long-term investment strategy and, and being patient and waiting, well, you're not going to have to wait here. You're going to be able to get into production your first year. Of course, you're going to get better production in your second year and your third year, but you get into production very, very quickly. Uh, it's not actually a cherry, though. It's really kind of a thing onto its own. It's a relative of both the cherry and the plum. The thing is, it's it's native. It's not. A, it's not man didn't make this through selective breeding or crossbreeding or anything. It comes out of uh, the Orient. And uh, when it first hit the United States, it hit it with a big fanfare, man, this is going to be a great plant, and then it just kind of trailed down and people just really didn't, it didn't take off. I think it's because it has kind of a unique issue that makes it very unsuitable for storage. When you pick it, unlike a cherry where you generally get the stem with the cherry, these things come off the stem, and there's almost no way to prevent that from happening unless you're out there picking them one at a time very, very slowly which would be very unproductive. Um, So the stem comes off. What's the big deal about the stem coming off? It leaves a little hole in the top of them, and they leak juice. So if you put a bag of them um, away for a couple days, you're going to have them all covered in their own juice, which uh, makes them saving and eating fresh a bit difficult. But uh, if you eat them fresh right away, they're, very, they're kind of like a tart cherry, sort of like Bing uh, is the best way I can describe the flavor. Uh, and, and So they're a good cherry to eat right away. If you're going to cook with them and you, know, you de them right away, it doesn't matter that they leak. Uh, and if you're going to do other creative things with them, then it doesn't matter that they leak. So what would be other creative things? Um, how about a cherry wheat beer uh, for you homebrewers? I think, that based on the tartness of these things, I think they would make an amazing cherry wheat beer. Uh, I would go for something that's kind of a clone, but with maybe a little more tartness of Samuel Adams' cherry wheat, if you've ever had that. I also think they would make a dynamite mead, a dynamite wine. So I think for the brewer and the vintner and the mead maker, they have immense uh, appeal. I also think about things like I like to get creative with, uh, with venting and, and brewing uh, cider making. So what if you took a nice uh, cider apple? And instead of using crab apple, which is a typical thing people do, is they use a little bit of crab apple. So if you're going to use, let's say, 50 pounds of apple, you might put in uh, 5 pounds of a crab apple variety to tart up your cider. What if you made a hard cider and instead of using crab apples to tart it, you used a tart cherry? So you made a tart cherry apple cider. You can use them also to make jellies and and, and preserves as well. So this plant's got a lot going for it. It's just not a plant that you're going to be able to let these things sit around. Now, what about pitting them and dehydrating them? I don't know. Everything leads me to believe that that would work out very well. Uh, It would probably be better uh, to to take a knife and score them and split them in half for dehydration. I don't know that you'd want to sit there and do a bushel of them like that. That would be... uh, it would be cumbersome and uh, take a very long time. But using them, you know, putting a few aside that way, probably a good idea. So check this plan out because for every little negative you can come up with, it's got an immense amount of positives. And the other thing is let's say that you have uh, the ability to grow a lot of cherries, but you have problems with birds. Uh, stealing your cherries well take your more desirable cherries plant them somewhere where they're a little bit uh, closer to activity and out on the outskirts plant your nanking bush cherries allow your birds to uh, be you know they'll take the safer route so to speak and they don't care that the daggone things leak so they'll act as a trap And I don't mean a trap as in to catch, but as a substitute for something else. Whenever you hear a gardener talk about a trap plant, this is a good little mini lesson in between. What they mean is that you'll plant something that the pest actually prefers that you don't care if they take. So, for instance, a lot of people in amongst their lettuce will plant radishes. And you know, radishes grow really fast and, and, and whatnot, but you know, white flies and flea beetles love to eat radish leaves more than they like lettuce leaves. So, by planting those radishes, even though they won't use most of them, and even if you do want the radish, you don't care how much of the leaf gets eaten, you only want the little red bulb under the ground. So, planting those radishes in there acts like a trap. That doesn't hurt, harm, or catch. So it doesn't mean trap in that way. What it means is it takes the pest and diverts it. So you could use Nanking as a, a, a trap plant for more desirable cherry species when you have bird problems. The next one that we want to talk about is really a cool plant. It's something that I just don't understand why it's not grown more. Okay, uh, Nanking bush cherry hardy from uh, zones 3 to 8. So again, most of the country can grow that plant. Uh, high bush cranberry though is the next one. And I don't get why more people don't grow high bush cranberry. It's uh, it's a good it's a good substitute for cranberry for those without acidic soil or boggy soil, and the things that normal cranberry uh, likes. It also grows upright. And the thing about cranberry, if you want any level of production, you've pretty much got a devoted area of at least the size of a typical raised bed garden uh, bed, you know, a 4 by 8 and that's not even going to you that much. You kind of need maybe double that to get any really high level of production uh, of cranberry. Cranberry obviously being be something you would want a high level of production because there's so many ways you can preserve it and utilize it uh, beyond, you know, just making cranberry sauce for dinner. Now, high-bush cranberry is actually more tart than real cranberry. It's not. This is not actually a cranberry plant. It's a common name for it, what they call it, but it's not really a cranberry. So, if you're going to cook with it or use it, it has to be sweetened. But there's a lot of things that you can do with it. It'll. Uh, it makes good preserves, syrup, or wine. So, there, there's, it has all of those things going for it. Um, and you can make kind of a cranberry sauce with it. You just have to sweeten it, which most people sweeten their cranberry sauce anyway. Uh, I used some, highbush uh, high bush cranberry. I had to buy it because I'm not growing any of this yet. Um, last year to make cranberry sauce. And I used it mixed with, uh, mandarin orange just out of a can. And I did that with, uh, with Thanksgiving dinner. And I served, uh, what is that, uh, uh, Linus made, uh, from Gamay Grape, uh, Bourjolais, uh, Bourjolais wine, which is very traditional for Thanksgiving. People are nuts. They're like, what is this? This is amazing. I've never had cranberry sauce like this. so It can be used that way. But again, as a home brewer, I look at that tartness and I go, anything that's tart with a fruity nature that I can mix with with an ale just has immense potential. So, Again, back to Sam Adams, because there are a lot of... Sam Adams and and what they've done over the years has been very inspirational for a lot of my homebrewing activity. And they make a a beer called Cranberry Lambic. Now, Cranberry Lambic is not really a Lambic or Lambic, depending on what part of the world you are and how you're going to say that. But Lambic is traditionally brewed only... In Belgium and about 10 miles around the city of Brussels uh, because it's a tart sour beer but it's not tart or sour because of anything that they put in it as an adjunct when they ferment this ale it's only done at a certain time of year they have these huge stone vats up open exposed to air on the tops of buildings and they put the wort which is uh, the beer before it becomes beer the liquid part of the beer with the hops and the malt extracted and it's ready to ferment and instead of of pitching yeast and they're taking yeast and keeping everything clean this stuff's open air fermented and the the, the bacteria and wild yeast that ferment this ale are um, indigenous to this area around Belgium and it's just like this quirk of fate that this even works out because some of these uh, wild yeasts actually would make the beer really unpalatable if they were allowed uh, to continue for a long period of time. But what happens is, because this is a totally natural suspension of these yeasts, as the, as the beer ferments, it becomes more acidic and more alcoholic. And different strains of the yeast begin to die off or peter out as the acid and alcohol level climbs and other strains begin to take over. And at the end, you end up with this very unique ale. You cannot make this exact ale in the United States. I have even taken, uh, there's uh, several varieties I've purchased, and I've, I've cultivated, because they have live yeast in the bottle, like Chimay does, for instance, as a Belgian ale. They don't pasteurize this beer. It has a little layer of the yeast in the bottom. I've kind of got that going uh, with a uh, with secondary fermentation in the bottle throwing some, uh, some malt in there and pitched it and, and made a clone. And it's okay, but it's not the same. So Sam Adams knew that wasn't going to work, so they wanted to make a Lambic-style beer. So they just took a good wheat beer, because you you know, Lambics are usually wheat, um, and they, they took the wheat beer and they added tart cranberry to it to impart the tartness. And it's not Lambic, but it's damn good. And if you've ever had uh, Sam Adams' Cranberry Lambic, you'll know it's good. Well, you can use this to make your own version of that, I think it will actually come out better because one of my complaints with uh, the Sam Adams product is it's not tart enough. But these are much tarter. So there seems to be a lot of potential for the home brewer. I know that was kind of a side note on home brewing there, but uh, it's good to know how things work and why things work because then when you want to replicate them, you know your limitations, but you also know what you can emulate and how to emulate it well. The next one up is elderberry. I think you're absolutely bat-crazy if you live anywhere. Uh, again, high cranberry keep leaving the zones out, 3 to 9. So, again, most of the country. Elderberry will get the zones out right away. Zones 4 to 9. So, again, most of the country, most of even like Colorado and places like that, you can grow elderberry. Um, if you want to make wine and you're exclusively growing grapes and you're not growing any elderberry, I think you're bat-crazy. I really do. I don't even understand the decision because elderberry is so much easier to grow than than grapes. It has so many less problems than grapes. It needs so much less care than grapes. It doesn't need a trellis. It produces blossoms, and you can harvest some of those as you start to get more elderberries than you can actually use uh, and and use them for cooking. And they make an amazing little fritter, a little fried fritter that's kind of a springtime tradition in places like uh, Virginia. Uh, They have uh, medicinal properties as well. Uh, You can buy what are considered Eastern varieties, uh, the two best ones are York and Nova. Again, York and Nova that uh, produce a larger, uh, sweeter berry for fresh use. You can make pie out of them. You can make preserves out of them. You can make juice out of them. But they... Make an exceptional wine. Uh, one of the people that my family was very good friends with growing up in Pennsylvania, that kind of sparked my interest in making wine, and, and later, which later led to me uh, learning how to make beer and ales and meads, was a guy named Buddy Shoemaker. And we used to give him uh, two huge garbage sacks full of Concord grapes every year. He would make wine for us out of those off our grapevines. And those those vines were uh, I guess they were close to a hundred years old. Amazing grapevines that my grandfather taught me about grapes with. And he would send back. He would probably take and, and he make all, grow wine out of all of those grapes, and he would give us back about sixty percent of the wine produced from those grapes, and he would keep forty. Kind of this is payment, as a barter exchange for the grapes because he didn't grow his own grapes. He just made wine, and he didn't have to grow grapes. He didn't have to grow anything because everybody in town would bring stuff to him and say, "Hey, buddy, make me some wine," because this guy was a master country winemaker. Now, if you wanted someone that would make a, a perfect Cabernet Sauvignon to serve at a steak. Restaurant at you know where people are paying $150 a plate, not that kind of winemaker. This guy was a country winemaker, he could make wine out of anything. He made parsley wine, parsley wine, he made jalapeno wine. Okay. This guy was amazing, the things he would come up with. And whenever I would go to pick the family's wine up from him, he would give me a few bottles of elderberry wine. And he, as I got into my teens, you're talking like 16, 17, all the kids you know, would occasionally go out and drink some beer or whatever. He'd say, hey, keep a bottle for yourself. I won't tell them how many I gave you. He'd say, use this for something special. Right? It makes me think of that song, Dust on the Bottle, that country western song uh, about something like that. And There was never any dust on those bottles, though. But I can tell you that elderberry wine was something special. It was, it was different, and it had a different character, and it has a potential to make what I think, and I've not done it yet, but I'm certainly going to do it next year by the time I'm kind of relocated and ready to go, to make an amazing need when I think about an elderberry mead and I think about all the things that I know about mead and its flavor profiles and everything that I know about an elderberry wine, I see a match made in heaven. So I know I'm talking a lot about beers and wines today, but I want you to realize that's another great way to preserve things. And if we ever get into a shit at the fan, if you have that skill set and you can produce wines and meads and ales out of production from your backyard... So you don't need a supply house to be able to do it. You have an immense amount of barter capability. when I'm, I'm telling you this story about Buddy Shoemaker. You should see that the shit had not hit the fan other than Jonestown, Pennsylvania, was kind of a depressed area. It was a place where my grandfather described it as, when the depression came, they told us, we didn't notice the difference. When it went away, they told us, we didn't notice the difference. And it's still like that today. Um, you know, So it does have that going on but, but this guy Buddy Shoemaker Was able to make every kind of wine under the sun And never had to till the soil once in his life He had a plain old little, little house With a great big basement Where he did all his winemaking And uh, he had a few things growing But mostly he didn't have to grow anything Because people would bring things to him Because he had a skill So think about the skill that goes along with these plants. And again, if you're not a drinker, elderberries are still great. They make a great jelly, uh, and they make a great sauce. And again, the flowers are edible. You don't even have to wait for the berries, and you'll get production in your first year, and by your second or third year, you're going nuts. They'll also grow huge if you let them. You can let elderberry bushes grow up to 15 feet in height, but they're really easy to maintain in the 6 to 8 foot height range. So they can be anything from, if you don't have room for trees, they can kind of take the place of a low tree layer for you down to a shrub layer. And they have a lot of potential for growing ground covers underneath them and allowing things to trail up them as well. Because as they get larger into their second and third year, they're a very strong plant. They're also native to much in the United States, so they grow well. Uh, elderberries are one of the easiest things to grow in the world. So it's not just that uh, they do well, but they don't take a lot of your input and they don't take a lot of your effort because it's a native plant. Uh, even if you get cultivars from outside of the United States that have you know, bred more for food production, they still have the same intrinsic characteristics of the native elderberry, so they're very, very easy to grow. Again, that's why I think if you're growing grapes for wine and you have space and you're not growing elderberries, you're back crazy because you're you're not taking advantage of something that is so productive and so easy to grow. Uh, let's move on to the next one. So the next one I have for you is something that I think is highly overlooked by a lot of folks, and it's called clumping bamboo. Um, and you could grow any bamboos, but I'm particularly talking about clumping bamboo today um, For a very specific reason. A lot of people are afraid to plant bamboo, especially in any kind of suburban situation, because it has a very well-earned reputation for traveling laterally underground and spreading and becoming something that will invade your neighbors and become impossible for them to control. In spite of what I'm going to tell you, just to be a good neighbor, if I was going to plant clumping bamboo here anywhere along my fence line, um, I would cut a trench and put in a barrier along the trench line. That said, it's not supposed to be necessary. But a small suburban lot, I would do it, not all the way around it like you would with some running bamboos, but just along the fence lines where it would spread directly to your neighbors, because you want to be a good neighbor and you want to kind of keep an eye on things. Uh, but again, it's not supposed to be a problem. Clumping bamboos spread very slowly without runners, so they just kind of increase their radius over time and can be pruned back. So I thought we were talking about edibles today. What's up with bamboo as an edible? Well, bamboo as an edible is all bamboo shoots are edible. From the giant timber bamboos that get so big around you can't get your hands around them to the smaller half-inch diameter clumping bamboos we're talking about today, as that new shoot comes up and you cut it off, it's edible. Great in stir-fries. It's in a lot of uh, Chinese and other Oriental-style cuisines. It's eaten all over the Orient. Everywhere that bamboo grows natively, it's considered a food crop. And all you have to do is go into your clump and look for the new shoots and cut them. And you almost can't cut too many. And once the plant's established, you'll never use as many bamboo shoots as it's capable of throwing up. It'll grow. So that's its edible uh, component. But remember I talked about Not just seeing the plant as something I can plant that grows well and I can eat it, but understanding its place in the system. Clumping bamboo offers so many things beyond bamboo shoots. First of all, it's extremely hardy. There are varieties that are hardy down to 20 degrees below zero. They won't handle that sustained, but they'll handle peat drops down there. So we're looking in the zone four for some species, zone five for most and higher. There are some that I believe can even go lower than that, but I can't I can't tell you their specific varieties so I haven't really looked for them because I don't have that problem so very very hardy the next thing is they grow in dense clumps that's why they're called clumping bamboos so they form great windbreaks so if you have a place where at a certain time of year wind hits very very hard and does damage to your other plants or blows away topsoil or anything you don't want the wind doing remember in a permaculture environment our thought process is not just what can I plant what will grow here it's Where is the energy coming from, whether it's solar or wind or any force, water movement that's acting on my system? And do I want that energy in or do I want to reflect it out? And in the case of wind, heavy, harsh hot wind or heavy, harsh cold wind, depending on the time of year, is generally energy that you want to keep out. Breezes are good for cooling. That's good. Heavy, harsh wind, bad. So, if you have a place where that problem exists, you plant several clumps of this bamboo, and in a very short period of time as it begins to grow, it will act as a great wind block. Excellent, right? Now, the clumping varieties do not get as big as the timber and laterally running varieties. There are varieties of bamboo that grow 75 feet tall and grow over 8 inches in diameter, timber varieties. And they're amazing, but you better control where you plant them because they they go like crazy once they start growing as far as spreading habitat. These things grow between 10 and 15 feet in height, depending on the variety, and generally get about a half inch in diameter. So I know a lot of you are thinking, well, using bamboo as a a building or a construction tool, a half inch in diameter doesn't seem that big. How much stuff have you built out of half inch PVC pipe? Think about it this way. When you plant clumping bamboo you get an endless supply of naturally produced half-inch PVC pipe. It's pretty much what you get. So you can do things like building trellises, arbors, uh, plant stakes, all completely provided for you on your property. Bamboo is so flexible, that's why it's used for so many things. Now, most industrial production of bamboo uses the timber varieties. Why? It spreads faster, grows bigger, and, and what have you. And you may live in an area where you can plant some timber bamboo. But you've got to have space to do that. And you've got to understand you've got, a bamboo grove becomes kind of a giant living organism that expands over time. And it takes a lot to control that. Clumping bamboos, again, you don't have that issue. Edible shoots, structure for building, and windbreaks. All in one plant, hardy throughout most of the United States, even though most people tend to think of bamboo as something tropical. And I think that it's tropical in people's minds because they think of China. But think of what China is really like. They have a border with Mongolia, right, which is close to Siberia. A lot of Chinese native plants are very hardy to a lot of the United States, bamboo being cheap among them. So you do have an invasive problem to concern yourself with with running bamboo. But clumping bamboo, again, safe effective, useful, and edible. Moving on to the next one. Filbert's also uh, called sometimes hazelnuts, though a filbert and a hazelnut are sort of different. Uh, they're not exactly the same plant. Highly related species. Um, another one I think that is deeply overlooked in the United States. Most filbert species will top out at about 10 feet in height, but they can get taller. But you can prune them to grow down at the shrub layer. So you can prune hazelnuts to grow you know, 5 to 6 feet tall. They can be done anything in little clumps to entire hedgerows of them to actually create a living fence. And with hazelnuts, since they graft well, you could actually plant a whole row of them and eventually graft the plants to each other, where you actually create something that will keep dogs or livestock in with them. So that can be done. It takes years to do but it certainly can be done. Much like a lot of the Midwest they did with Osage Orange, a lot of the country you could do the same thing with filbert, only unlike Osage Orange, which is gross and not really useful for food, um, and it's not really gross, it's just sticky is what I mean by that. Hazelnuts are a great food source. You can also grow them as trees, and there's like uh, most hazelnuts are hardy, or filberts are hardy into uh, zones 5 through 9, but there's a Turkish tree hazel, Hardy to zone three, so if you're out, so, so, you know, if you're colder than zone five, you can look into that. Now, the Turkish tree hazel, unlike these little shrub and spreading plants, uh, will grow up to 75 feet tall and a canopy up to 30 feet wide. So it's a much larger tree. I'm sure you can do some things with pruning, but I don't think you can maintain that plant once it gets a sufficient root system underneath it. You're talking about a giant tree, you know, on par with the size of a chestnut tree, only it's dropping hazel that's a instead of chestnuts. But what do we do with hazelnuts? Well, they're great eating fresh, absolutely outstanding for that. They're really a very cool thing for, for baking. Uh, they tend to get soft when baked, if they're baked in a moist environment. So, like, I've baked hazelnuts with butternut squash. Really, really awesome. And they impart a lot of that hazelnut flavor um, to the squash. Uh, the other thing you can do with them is you can kind of roast them and grind them into a flour, and they make more of a pastry flour than a bread flour, but they are a pretty decent flour. They just have that sweetness that's common to filberts and hazelnuts. Now, that can be mixed with something like pancake batter to make hazelnut pancakes. You you take it from there. But you can also take and and crush it up and use it as a coating on things like fish, and you can use that as like a thick, crushed coating, Uh, coat fish with that and bake it, crisp, or grind it to a flour and mix it with batter and use it as a lightening agent. I wouldn't use a lot. Let's say uh, if you're making a batter only maybe 10 to 15% using hazelnut, uh, but it increases uh, or decreases the carbohydrate component to the batter and makes fried food a little bit healthier, but it lightens it, almost like a rice flour would. So it's just a tremendous... And I'll leave it to you, what else you can do with hazelnut. But think about the fact that hazelnuts or filberts, um, they just have all of these things going for them. Uh, they'll grow most any place, And then a lot of the varieties do something called suckering. Suckering is what bamboo does that we find is a problem. Well, with hazelnuts, we generally would say not a problem because it's easy to cut them off and keep them from growing if we want them to. And they don't go anywhere near as fast or as large. But what that means is starting with just a few uh, plants we could eventually create an entire grove of hazelnuts with a very low initial capital investment. We can accelerate this by buying more plants. But one way or another, whether we buy a few plants in the beginning or a lot of plants in the beginning, we're going to get more. I've also talked to a lot of people that have had great success with digging up some of their excess hazelnuts and replanting them to other properties or just other locations on their property. They seem to handle that pretty well. So, again, we have all these things going for it: a plant that reproduces itself, that produces a nut, and, of course, is a nut, dried out. It stores very well. So it's something we don't have to process in any way to store. We have a protein source that is a lot more complete of a protein than most vegetables or fruits could ever offer us. One last thing for the guy that keeps asking me when I talk about all these foods, if I'm going to you know, teach you to make a pie next, crushed hazelnuts make an amazing pie crust. So there you go. The versatile filbert slash hazelnut, everything from a living hedge to a source of flour and protein, and immediately storable, and will get you into production generally third year. Third year gets you into some decent production. Some will have a few nuts in your second year. I just don't, wouldn't call it production. Anything I've seen with hazelnuts in their second year, you're talking a handful here, a handful there, uh, when you're getting into you know, gathering uh, at any level. Now, here's the thing about hazelnuts. Squirrels love them. Plant more than you're going to need because the squirrels are going to take some. But the other side of that, when you attract squirrels, you attract what? Another protein source. And whether it's out in the country with a 22 long rifle or in suburbia with a good gamma pellet rifle, they're easily harvested additional protein sources. Think of them like livestock that you don't have to take care of, that reproduces and cares for itself. So when, when some people say, well, this plant attracts squirrels, and they see that as a problem, I see it as a positive. It attracts squirrels. I like to eat squirrels. Hazelnut fed squirrel. Sounds like it belongs on a gourmet menu. Um... Last but not least is a plant that oh, I think almost everybody's familiar with, but I'm going to tell you about a particular variety of it today and uh, why that's beneficial to you and I think maybe it'll be uh, kind of eye-opening for some people about maybe, maybe frustrations they've had with this plant in the past or just if they, they've had to take care of this plant in the past and thought it was a lot of work, how much less work it can be. And it's blackberry and specifically what's known as primocane blackberry, also known as ever-bearing blackberry. Uh, the problem, I would always call it a problem, but the, this is the way you typically would deal with a blackberry plant. You plant the plant, and the canes grow the first year. You trim the canes, but you leave them erect, up high. The second year, those canes will produce fruit and new canes, first-year canes, will sprout from the ground. At the end of that second year, you want to take all your canes that fruited and cut them off of the ground, and don't cut the canes that grew that year but didn't fruit. The next year, it all repeats itself. The second-year wood produces, and the first-year wood grows. And you have to keep being selective at how you cut those out. All right? Not that big a deal, but you know, it's just... It's, it's something you, you have to be selective with what you're doing, and you have to make room for canes, so you have to make enough room for 50% of your canes to be nonproductive, is the best way I can put it, because you need those 50% for next year, if that makes sense. cane, what you can do is every year once the plant, you know, the leaves fall off and they're done for the year, you go through and just cut everything just about an inch above the ground because they fruit on first-year canes. Which means that when they grow up that year, by about September, they'll start producing fruit, and they'll produce fruit from September until frost. They don't come the fruit and then finish and done. They, they keep producing and keep producing and keep producing like an ever bearing strawberry. Hence everberry. Primocane means first cane. right? So primo one, so first year cane production. Now, They also will produce on second-year cane. So what that means is when you go through and cut down to the ground, without really being that selective, you can just maybe leave 10% of the canes. If you do that, those canes will produce by June. And then what you can do is, as your new canes begin to produce, since it's really easy to identify at that point, go in and take out those 10% of canes right before the September production begins to come in. And then you have kind of a production beginning in June and lasting until frost. But you can do it either way. Prima cane will do that for you. No other blackberry will do that. Blackberries, the, the type that I uh, just uh, described in the beginning, they'll start fruiting for you earlier in the year, but they'll stop fruiting. By the end of summer, they're done. Well, primocanes, if you get them started in September, will run all the way. So I can either have very low maintenance, cut it to the ground, compost it, uh, September to frost, uh, not even frost, freeze, September to freeze production, or leave some of the canes, and I can extend it from June to my, to my first real freeze. Primocanes do that, nope, nothing else does. What do you do with blackberries? Whatever you want to, man. They're great for fresh eating. They, 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 they dehydrate well, actually, especially if they're cut in half. Um, they make a good dye. Uh, they're an excellent, uh, again, uh, either an adjunct or uh, a sole fruit in a wine. Blackberry wheat beer, awesome. Blackberry ale, awesome. Blackberry mead, really awesome. Blackberry mead, to me, stands up against good Cabernet. It really does. It's an amazing, uh, it's an amazing wine. Uh, jelly, preserves, pies, jams. You do whatever you want with blackberries. But again, by bringing that promo cane in, now you have ease of maintenance. Because one of the biggest things that I think we should be looking for from all of our plantings is ease of maintenance and ease of production, ease of harvest, uh, and ease of, uh, of care. So blackberries, again, we've got a plant that's native to the United States. And if you think about some of the places wild blackberries grow, they grow in some of the harshest environments. When you bulldoze a side of the Ozark Mountains or all the way down to Florida or up to uh, Pennsylvania, anywhere in that, that big triangle there, that's all native down to Texas. That's all native blackberry range. And when you bulldoze something and the pioneering plants start to kind of come back and naturally heal the land, one of the first things to show up are blackberries. In fact, when you have native blackberry growing, it's generally an indicator that you have poor quality soil and it's in a rebuilding state. So if blackberries can grow in that condition, if you give them a little bit of what they need, imagine what they can do for you. So there you go, nine plants that are investments. They take a little bit of effort to get off the ground, but they'll produce for you year after year after year. Again, though, I want you to think about how do they fit together. How can we do something? Let's take just the plants that we have and look at kind of creating the beginnings of a permaculture system. So I'm going to start out with uh, with my clumping bamboo. I'm going to put my clumping bamboo in a partially shaded area, kind of on the back of the property, breaking some of the wind, and I'll bring it out a little bit. Coming in uh, just in front of my clumping bamboo with good solar exposure, I'm going to go and plant some of my jujube trees, my Chinese dates, uh, and maybe in with the jujubes. Uh, I would go ahead and plant some Nanking bush cherries just in front of those. Out in front of, and then in between, uh, those, I'm gonna plant, uh, some filberts. And maybe along one area that I'd like to create kind of a fenced-in area without actually building a fence, I'm gonna plant my filberts, hazelnuts, fairly densely to create that edge. Now right in front of that edge, I've got good solar exposure, so coming down low in front of those, maybe I'll plant something like blue honeysuckle interspersed throughout, and I'm going to add things like my goji berries and my high bush cranberries. so my high shrub layers just out in front of my trees and my, my, my taller shrubs and semi-trees and semi-dwarf tree. Uh, coming more out into the open and away from there, right out on the edge of, uh, right before I, I drop down to my herbaceous layer and my annuals and my perennial herbs, I'll plant things like bush elderberry. You know, I mean, think about a system like that. And I'm using maybe 50% of the plants that I mentioned today, or maybe 60% of the plants that I mentioned today. How much production you get out of that? And how little space you can really do that, and that can be done in my. I have a third of an acre backyard. I could do that here. I'd have to kill this really big, beautiful ash tree Uh I, I don't really want to kill it because I'm going to be selling the house. But uh, that's what I would have to do to open up the sunlight because it's, it's not a bad tree. It's just in the wrong place. Uh, but if I did that, I could open this whole swath and begin that type of production. Just on it, you know, a, a, then there's really two tenths of an acre in my backyard. I would say of my whole third acre lot. So it's possible. Anywhere. Now, if you have an acre to work with and you start bringing conventional things like apples and crab apples and pears and plums and peaches and almonds, and you bring that in with all the diversity created by these plants, the key is to plant them. Watch how they interact with other plants. Observe that interaction and then enhance the positive qualities of that interaction. What does the plant need? Plant two of them in two different places. It does well in one place. It does poorly in the other. What's the difference? Is it wind? Is it sun? Is it a plant that it's planted next to? Is it soil quality? Is it moisture? You have a drought-tolerant plant you want to plant it on the higher parts of your property. You have a moisture-needing plant you want to plant it on the lower parts of your property. Think of how these things fit together. It's not just a list of plants. You can get a list of plants out of a catalog. I don't think you tune in for that. I think you tune in to learn about these plants, yes, but to understand their interactions and to realize how they can be part of your homesteading and part of how they can be part of your preparedness. I've given you plants today that not only produce food for you year after year, they give you the ability to create barter items. Elderberry wine. Post you hit the fan, that would be a pretty good thing to have is a good quality supply of elderberry wine. As long as you have yeast and the ability to propagate yeast, you don't need anything else but elderberries and water to make elderberry wine. Elderberry and blackberry wine would be even better. Bring in some bees. Now we have pollinators. We have honey. We have the potential to make mead. Um, there's so many things we can do here. I've given you a tree in juju that when you pick the, the, the fruit, it's already preserved. There's so many things you can do if you'll open your mind beyond straight lines, raised beds, and typical suburban gardens. And start to think about the way nature works. My homework for you while I'm gone, sometime before I'm back, Monday next week. Again, shows will be here, but sometime this next week, maybe over the weekend, go to a park, go to a forest, go to the woods. Good time of year to do it in most of the countries. Way up north, nothing's starting really to grow back yet, but there's buds popping out, things are starting to grow. Walk through the forest now before it grows thick. In fact, up north is still good for this. Because the structures, the bushes, the shrubs, everything, the leaves are still down. But you can see the structure, so you can see the shape. Walk through the forest. It's your teacher. The forest will show you what works. It is the most productive system on the planet ever. It is far more productive than an Iowa cornfield. Take a walk in the woods somewhere this weekend. Learn from it. Adapt from it. And bring that to your yard. Because it can be done and it's not that hard. If it can happen all by its own, with nothing but the innate intelligence of the planet, out in the middle of nowhere, then shaped by your hands, it can do even better. We can actually improve upon nature with permaculture. Someone recently asked me to prove my claim that permaculture can solve world hunger on a podcast. Without trying, I think I've done that for you today. Because if everybody grew just a little bit the way that I've described today throughout our country, we would have more food that we could eat. And that's simple, and that's easy, and anybody can do it. And if times get tough, it'll be there for you. This has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't can scream, and you can holler, it really doesn't matter, cause it all gets spent.